0: that central sort of understanding of virtue is is avoiding the ditches on both sides of the road. And you can look at any issue that divides the church today or in history and see how staying in that middle, that moderate, you know, not, I don't mean mushy compromise. I mean, I mean, avoiding extremes on either side and strive for that truth, which is in the middle, in the crux, which is where we actually find Christ. This
1: modern world is of particular interest to women. Betwixt, at the intersection of faith and culture. Well, hi, friends. Welcome to the Betwixt podcast. I'm Deb Gregory. This is the last episode in Season 2, so as I take the rest of the summer to spend with my family and then begin production for Season 3 in the fall, I hope you'll go back and listen to some of the previous episodes that you missed. So, when was the last time that you talked about virtue? Virtue is a term that's kind of gone out of vogue. It basically means moral excellence, which is partly why it's gone out of vogue. Aristotle described virtue as the moderation betwixt and between the extremes of deficiency and excess. Those are vices. So for instance, if truthfulness is the virtue, the lack of truth is lying, but the excess of truth is boasting. Also, why talking about virtue isn't so popular. Another way of saying it is that virtues are the good habits that lead to the good life. You know, I've always thought of virtue as kind of personal character, but I'm learning that virtue isn't about me doing good things so that I can live a good life. According to theologian Stanley Hauerwas, virtue helps us negotiate the dangers of the world in which we live. But virtue is not something self-made. It only makes sense when my life and actions are connected to others. Scottish moral philosopher Alistair MacIntyre, he connected virtue to the story and the history of a community. Virtue intertwines me with my community and its history because the aim is the common good. This is why virtue and the good life are best understood through story. The story of my life, MacIntyre writes, is always embedded in the story of those communities from which I derive my identity. Okay, so this is where my guest Karen Swallow-Prior comes in. Picking up on some of these ideas, she invites us to look at virtue through story. Her new book is on reading well, finding the good life through great literature. Her book explores traditional Christian virtues through great stories. Dr. Karen Swallow-Pryor is English professor at Liberty University. She's a research fellow with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. That is a mouthful. She's also a senior fellow with the Trinity Forum and a member of the Faith Advisory Council of the Humane Society of the United States. But first, I want to tell you a little story. Karen and I met at the Missy Alliance Awakenings Gathering in Virginia, We had just come from a very moving luncheon for women who were leaders of various ministries and within denominational settings. And together, we named the pain of silencing, abuse, and shame that we had experienced in our various ministry roles. It was really raw. It was courageous. It was grace-filled. The word valor certainly came to mind. So when Karen and I recorded this conversation, that event was fresh in our minds. So as we talk notice how our conversation veers from uncovering virtue in fictional story to the power of encountering virtue in a real-life story as it unfolds. A little later in this episode, Mandy Smith is going to join us to share a little bit more about that story and why the topic of virtue has been so difficult for women. It was such a fantastic conversation that I'm going to include it as a bonus behind the scenes track that's going to accompany this episode. So look for it in your podcast app or at betwixtpodcast.com. So now let's talk with Karen Swallow-Prior. Karen, thank you for joining me. Thank uh, you for having me. First of all, what would you like to tell me about who you are and the things that delight you? Well,
0: I think I get most of my identity from, of course, being a Christian, being a wife to my husband, Roy, for 34 years, and being an English professor, and even just more generally being a teacher. When I was growing up and had many aspirations for what I wanted to be when I grew up, I declared that I would never be a nurse or a teacher. (laughs)
1: okay
0: and so i still would never i don't even change band-aids so i could never be a nurse um how come you didn't
1: see yourself do that
0: that's a good question i think that i did not see myself doing that because those were the stereotypical things that women would do, and I just aspired to do. I wanted to be a psychiatrist, or veterinarian. I started out in college as a social work major. You know, I just wasn't going to be those two things.
1: Why did you choose to study English literature if you didn't see yourself teaching? What about it captivated yeah. you? Well, as I said, I started out as a social work major
0: and quickly discovered, you know, first year in college that, that most college students... Changed their major, realized it was you know not what I thought it would be, and but at the same time, I had always loved English in school and did well in it. But I wasn't really challenged, and I also because English was easy for me, I didn't know that people took it seriously and studied it seriously, and I didn't know it was an area of scholarship more than, so, than just a hobby. Yeah, right, right, more yeah. than just something fun. And I love my English teachers, and I love writing, and I love reading, and, and you know yeah. I. Just wrote things and read trashy things and enjoyed it. <laughs> um, so once I took my first college introduction to literature class, I was challenged. The department chair encouraged me to switch to be an English major, and I said I would never do that. But then three things happened. Are you are you wanting yeah, the long version? I tell okay, okay. Tell me. Um, I discovered that social work wasn't for me in part because of statistics, which I had to take. <laughs> um I discovered that English was something, you know, different, something that you could take seriously. And I also got married in the middle of my sophomore year of college. And getting married just freed me to dream and think and oh, wow. um pursue what I wanted to, to do. I don't know, something about getting married and my husband just gave me this confidence and this sense of I can do anything uh, that I maybe didn't have before and security probably too. I mean, and I don't mean financial security because we were pretty poor, but it was like I I was launched and so I switched Mm -hmm. to English. I actually did not discover that I was created to teach until I was into my PhD program in English literature. So the first English composition class that I had at the university's night school for returning adults. I just fell in love with teaching and I've not stopped teaching since. It's been almost 30 years that I've been teaching in the college classroom and Mm -hmm. I love
1: it. Well, the world is happy. <laughs> that. Thank you. I'm so glad. Well, most most
0: of the world. I've got a few students maybe who are weren't too happy with the grades they got, but most
1: of them are. So. Um, so you've got this new book out on reading well. Yes. Tell me the synopsis of what it's about.
0: So, on reading well, finding the good life through good books, great books, is a book about literature. It's twelve chapters about twelve different novels, or a couple of them about short stories, but it's also about how literature shows us how to live virtuously. So I center each book around one of the classical virtues. And it's not so much about how the book teaches this virtue, although it's partly that, but it's also just about how we can practice virtue vicariously as we enter the imaginary lives of these characters and we go mm-hmm. through what they go through and we we go through the decision-making process with them or we make the mistakes that they make which really replicates the kind of thing we do every day, interacting with people and trying to read and interpret situations as they as we encounter them. That's what literary fiction does, and, and mm-hmm. studies show, for example, that the people who read literary fiction are more empathetic because of that process. So that's just one kind of example of how literature <laughs> cultivates Yay, many of... Yes, ma- yes, it cultivates <laughs> the qualities in us that make us human. Now that can also, you know, we can use those qualities and characteristics for ill as well as for good, but I focus in this book on how we can read literature in such a way that it teaches us about virtue and also helps us to practice the virtues so that we can be more virtuous in our real lives.
1: It strikes me as, so courage, right, is one of the virtues. It strikes me as a little bit courageous (laughs) to even, as a professor of literature, to even talk about virtues today. I mean, that's so not popular.
0: You are so right. I mean, when I went to grad school, It was in the height of the years where theory had completely overtaken the text and that you, you, Mm -hmm. no one was supposed to read a literary text to learn something from it or to, God forbid, enjoy it just for (laughs) enjoying it. Everything was about, you know, feminist theory, Marxist theory, postmodern theory, deconstruction, you know, and just sort of using the text to advance some sort of ideological agenda. was hard for me because I was there because I love literature and I still do. And so broadly speaking, you could say that my approach is based on moral criticism, which isn't even something that I really adhere to. Uh, It's also based on aesthetic criticism. So I really do try to focus not just on the content, the moral content, mm-hmm. but also how literature is an aesthetic experience. Yeah. And that's why, like, if you go, if you read the summary, the synopsis on Wikipedia or Spark Notes, I, you know, when I was in school or when my, I first started teaching, it was Clip Notes. Now it's Spark Notes. You know, if students will go and read the summary for class instead of reading the work. Well, you know, you can get a little bit of information from that. But it can never recreate that aesthetic experience yeah. of moving through linear time through the words on the page and experiencing the process of that story as it unfolds. Yeah. And so I try to focus on that in the book as well.
1: I, um, I'm an angry reader. <laughs> Is that one of the, the virtues? <laughs> That's probably one of the vices. That's one of the vices, but it's okay. But I do. I tend to read, like some of my favorite books are the books that make me angriest. Mm-hmm. Oh, same here. Right? Yes. Like I love Fountainhead. Okay. I haven't, I haven't read it. I love Ayn Rand's, the way she captures the world, mm. like the way she um, describes these people who are producers. Cause I'm like, I am one of those people. I love to produce. Like I am so drawn to this person, but her overall ideology, I like, despise. So mm. I feel in incredible mm. conflict.
0: hmm But it means you're awake to the power of language and it you know, when it's well used, that's right? True. Because yeah. it is very powerful. And that and that's you it's, know It's, it's powerful
1: it's disruptive.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean it's like it's like one of my favorite books that I haven't been courageous enough to write about is um, Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov. Which okay. is read it's you know it's a disturbing book. It's a it's it's a pedophile's narration of his sins and his crimes and his lusts and it's told through his perspective and it's disturbing and I don't recommend it widely to anyone it's redemptive ultimately in the end but It shows the power of language, not only in the story itself, but in the way that this character convinces himself that his evil is so right. And so the book does not endorse that, but it shows us how that can be done. And so it serves really as a warning to use this gift and this tool of language
1: carefully. Yeah. And how to um engage ideas mm-hmm. that are different yeah. than your own. Yeah, exactly. Or um I recently read C. S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. When I got through Paralandra, I that book made me so angry. And I know it's probably sacrilegious to publicly say that anything C. S. Lewis <laughs> writes makes you angry. <laughs> but it really contended with some points of conflict that I guess I haven't grappled with about the nature of violence. Mm-hmm. And is God violent? And it just posed so many questions for me that I've had to shelf that series. Wow! <laughs> I'm like, I have to work through this now. Thanks a lot, C.S. Lewis. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that's you know that's good. That that literature is kind of a playground, hmm. or maybe a boxing ring of a ideas. Boxing ring, I no. like that. That's really important. That's how it yeah. develops us as people. You know, in ways that are we can experience so much without really experiencing it, and and try out and test ideas. You know, another. Yeah example I like to talk about is Madame Bovary, one of my favorite novels, you know, I mean, you read that novel. I (laughs) I mean, you know, this is a character who is, you know, dissatisfied with life and her marriage and is wooed into a life of adultery and Mm -hmm. it ends disastrously. And, but yet you can read and be sympathetic with Emma Bovary and yet end the book going, wow, her way of thinking is wrong. Okay, You know, and so what can I do to make sure I don't fall into that trap?
1: Yeah. Um, so as you were writing the book, um, I'm sure you had to do a lot of research on the virtues. Yes. Right?
0: <laughs> yes. I knew nothing about them.
1: Yeah. So, so what was that process like for you? Was there a certain virtue that you had to contend with, virtue or vice, that you were like, mm. man, this is disrupting? Maybe something in you that you had to go back and kind of do some examination about?
0: Yeah, I mean, I had to research sort of all the... find out what they all were and all the different categories. There are many different lists and narrow it down, figure out which ones I was going to talk about and figure out which books I would talk about with them. And so there was that sort of structural writing process kind of thing that is typical with any book. So, I mean, I would say the one that was hardest for me to write about because it's so complicated is justice.
1: Okay. Because justice
0: is... Unlike all the other virtues, a person can be just or unjust, but a community can be as well. All the other virtues really just have to do with individual character, but justice is one that engages communities politics mm-hmm. you know um, and so it was it was you know and i'm I'm not a moral philosopher or a virtue ethicist or a political scientist, and I had to kind of look at all those things, so it was challenging and I really wanted to write about it in a way that helps address issues that we're facing today, but also write it in a way that would not put off the readers who most need to think about these issues. So I ended up writing about Charles Dickens A Tale of Two Cities. You know, he was writing about the French Revolution, he lived a century after. So he was taking that moment in history and writing about it in a way to warn his own contemporaries a century later about injustices he saw happening in his own time and country. Uh-huh. And so That's then amazing. I was okay. writing about a tale of two cities in a way that I hope helps reflect on some injustices we're dealing with in our society today, if that makes sense. Yes. Yes. So he wrote about how the French Revolution started out as you know, an attempt to regain justice, but turned into its own injustice. And so I'm writing about how there are injustices that we are still carrying forward into the future of our country based on our past. Some people say that correcting it would be an injustice, but I'm showing, as Dickens I think was also showing, that failing to address it also results in injustice. Not that there's an easy answer for that, but at least to understand that any excess of injustice in one direction, if it's not corrected, will result in an excess in the opposite direction eventually. It's a very tricky balance and it's easy for both sides to get it wrong, so we've got to get it right.
1: Which is what's Kind of intrigued me about like the way that you describe virtues and vices in the book kind of pulls from Aristotle's view of virtue being somehow in between mm-hmm. two extremes. Right. right. An extreme of excess and an extreme
0: of deficiency. And so I think the courage is the easiest virtue, maybe to talk about how every virtue is a model of this. So courage is good. If you have too little, that's cowardice. That's easy. But if you have too much of courage and it's not connected to the other virtues, it results in rashness. And rashness is a vice. Like, you don't just go out and do things because you're brave enough to do them. You have to be pursuing some good, some justice, and you have to not be reckless in doing it. You know, because if you go too far, then then recklessness will result in more damage than good.
1: Okay. Yeah. And so, how does that work with justice? What were
0: you oh, coming so, up with? Oh, so yeah. As so with justice, um, you know, there are lots of ways of looking at, it. and and the simplest way that I came up with to talk about in the book is justice is is like fairness and like having what is owed to you or you deserve, and not taking from someone else what they deserve, which mm-hmm. is really hard <laughs> in practice, of course. So. The simplest definition that I came up with is justice is the mean or the moderation between selfishness and selflessness. Now, oh, we're oh used boy. yeah, we're oh, used right. to yeah, we're used <laughs> to thinking of se- oh, selflessness man. as being good, but there's a way in which being completely like er- erasing yourself, you know, mm-hmm. being completely selfless and in an English, you know, we don't really have a good way of talking about, but yeah. I would say self erasure is not just. So it's like being just to yourself and to others. And, and it's not just to others to be selfish. And it's also not just to yourself to be selfless in a way that erases yourself.
1: All right. Well, yeah. that's a
0: message for
1: many women, especially today. Yes. Right? Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah. It is yeah. not justice to yeah. diminish yourself beyond what God created you to be.
1: So as you grappled personally with these virtues and vices, what were some of the vices that you saw in yourself that you realized you need some kind of in-between
0: virtue? I think the one that probably personally hits me is temperance. You know, there's a way of talking about temperance that's more metaphysical, but Aristotle used it to talk just about sort of the physical appetites, you know, like so food, drink, sex, the things that we have to have to continue either living ourselves or as a species Again, they're all connected. Mm. Temperance isn't just restraint or self-denial. True temperance is desiring things in the right amount. So you can deny yourself the cupcake, but it's only temperance if you truly don't want maybe the second cupcake or want too much, more sweets than are good for you, or more drink than is good for you, or more Mm. sex than is good for you, or less right because anorexia is not temperance Mm. so and and i i do think temperance is helpful also to think about every you know not just the physical appetites as aristotle does but so for me um you know just one example is like i love clothes i love shoes and i have too much i have more than i can enjoy properly and so that's very intemperate and um You know, I, writing this book made me realize that I need to work on that.
1: Okay. You need a little Marie Kondo in your life.
0: (laughs) I do. You know, she, I think, I think she can be excused, accused of going in
1: the other, too extreme in the other direction. But yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Oh man, that's probably a sore spot for me as well. So (laughs) moving on. Um, The one that really jumped out for me in your book was Hope, Mm. which I thought was really interesting, even just reading, the way you wrote about hope, because first of all, I do not connect at all with apocalyptic (laughs) literature Literature, (laughs) or any kind of movies or anything, (laughs) but you picked a a book that that was the theme. But I found myself actually skimming over certain sections because I felt like, oh, that actually does stir some despair. (laughs) So I quickly tried to get past that and then I had to notice, oh my goodness, like look Mm -hmm. what I'm doing, Mm -hmm. right? I'm not even reading the book. I'm just reading you talk about 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 it. I really resonated with the way that you described hope as having four conditions. Hmm. It regards something good in the future that's difficult but possible to Hmm. obtain. Yeah, yeah. And that really struck me because I think all of these, somehow, women have an extra distortion. Can I just interject to say yeah. something?
0: That yeah. the Latin root word for virtue is the same root word for man. For man. Not human, but so, man. So yeah. virtue really literally meant manliness. I'm sure there's some history for
1: us yeah, to exactly. attack as exactly. women. Exactly.
0: That we've not been expected to be virtuous, except in one way which in the 19th century, virtue ended up being like a synonym for chastity. So that's all that it's required for a woman to be virtuous
1: is to be a virgin until marriage. All right, women go get this book. we need this. (laughs) But we do need to reclaim and to see the distortions that we have, right? I think that's part of what has made me so emotional at this conference Mm -hmm. is this realization that, you know, as I'm learning my own voice and agency, It is hard for me to even begin to imagine what could be good, what's in the future, or what's possible. All I really experienced is that difficult part, (laughs) right? And I think so many women resonate with that, man, I know the difficult part, but how do I get those other four things? And so it's really meaningful when we can have conversations like this or spaces like at Missy Alliance where women can share stories together and we can look to one another to begin to imagine something new or different or something we've never thought of for the future or as good right. Or possible, right? Right,
0: right. And And those are the conditions that require hope and one of them is the
1: difficulty. Yes, that's right. So, difficulty is good. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. It's, it's one of the necessary parts. Seeing difficulty as that necessary part of hope, Karen and I turned our conversation to the women's luncheon that we had just attended. It was a really diverse gathering. I mean, Lutherans, Mennonites, Pentecostals, Baptists, and, and more all coming together in a spirit of unity it's really powerful but there was some heavy moments of deep grief and lament as women recognized rejection silencing uh, even abuse at the same time struggling to figure out what it means to be faithful to God with the gifts that they have I was really moved by that gathering together so I don't know what was your experience there what did you think I guess I'm used
0: to the kind of um, polarizing categories that exist in the world and also even in the church today, which is which is hard. When it comes to women's issues, it just seems like the women that I'm most exposed to, you know, it's just like either conservative or progressive or egalitarian or complementarian. And, you know, it's a binary that's based on opposition and conflict and disagreement and denouncement. And what I felt and heard and experienced in the lunch today was women who believe differently on the role of women in the church and the giftings and callings of women in the church. We're lamenting, as you said, but we're supporting one another and affirming
1: So there was a story that Mandy Smith told during that gathering that it kind of moved us from this place of hopelessness that many women feel as they confront the challenges of ministry. It moved us from that into a sense of hope and of courage. The thing is, the gathering was so intimate that it wasn't recorded. So I called up Mandy Smith, who emceed the event, to help me tell you the story of what happened that afternoon. Now, you can listen to the whole behind-the-scenes conversation which follows this episode. But For now, here's a recap of how Karen and I witnessed virtue at work during that luncheon. If I remember it
2: correctly, we kind of named the pain. You know, I remember the moment where I just said, raise your hand if you've had painful experiences in the church as a woman.
1: Nearly every hand was raised, and Mandy went on naming the pain. Raise your hand if you felt rejection.
2: Yeah, of ways we've been told our voice is not welcome. If you felt
1: silencing, if you felt abuse,
2: always we've felt our body shamed, always we felt our calling is a mistake or something like that. But I could tell in the room that it was a really, like I felt like it was a really sacred moment.
1: Then Mandy told us a story about her own painful encounter with a brother who didn't acknowledge her call or her voice. And I remember
2: praying to the Lord and just being like, change him, teach him, show him, (laughs) fix him, you know, so I can do the thing you've called me to do. And I felt the Lord say, let your anger go. Felt like he was asking me to take all the pain in my body from this rejection. And I was like holding it in my hand and ready to cast it at this man. And he was saying, no, swallow it. And uh, I thought it was going to kill me. I really did think like my identity was going to cease at that moment. But what happened was actually deep release and freedom. You know, as it always is, that when he calls us to die, we think we're actually being called to die to something that is central to who we are because we've misunderstood it. And what he's actually doing is calling us to die to something that isn't who we are. I actually came to see that man in a totally different way. I saw him as someone who also was wrestling with a false self and I came back to him instead of imagining he was this like big dragon and I was this little squeaky mouse saying, I have a voice too! (laughs) Trust me, believe me! And this huge dragon that's ten times my size was like just blasting me with flames and so I was feeling so oppressed and so small and it was perpetuating the story we've already been told and then in that moment of dying to that cycle because I was stuck in a cycle of like this little mouse trying to puff itself up to be as big as the dragon and breathe a few little puffs of smoke back in its general direction. And it was just, I couldn't pull it off. I'm not a dragon, you know. (laughs) And so I think in that moment when the Lord asked me to die to that it broke me out of that cycle and suddenly I, this little mouse, if you imagine like looking over at this huge dragon and actually walking over and seeing like there's actually a little door in the dragon suit going over and knocking on the door, and it's not actually a dragon, it's another little mouse who's in a dragon suit, you know, and knocking on the door and saying, hey, come out, we're both in the same situation here,
1: you know. Soon after that experience, Mandy was leading a workshop on her book, The Vulnerable Pastor. And a man from the audience kept interrupting her. He critiqued her and challenged her as she spoke. I had this strange
2: moment when he really kind of went off in this preaching kind of, I don't know if Ty read it, was, it was really very rude. Mm, <laughs> and Was he kind of um, lecturing you? Yes, it was. So I had that moment of like, this is very familiar. I've been... Spoken to in this way so many times before and it attempts me to just go into that It's almost like a script. Oh, we we know our parts in this script. You get to be the dragon I get to be the little mouse, you know I thought my only two choices were I'm gonna just melt in a puddle of tears right now (laughs) because I'm embarrassed and I look foolish in front of these people who came to hear me speak as a professional person or Come back with anger and say, How dare you interrupt me? You know, but there was a third option which was a kind of an emptying. And I said to him, Sir, if you haven't heard me yet confess to you that the Lord is my only hope, let me tell you now. And so I preached a sermon to him basically about how many ways, I need the Lord, especially in this moment, right now, when I actually don't know how to handle this situation. Like this was with tears, but it wasn't with tears of like, I'm just a little girl and nobody listens to me, or even angry tears, which has been the case in the past. But it was tears of like, even this very moment is teaching me, I just need the Lord, I cannot do this without Him. and. Um, there was like this hush that came over the room. And interestingly, he actually smiled after a few minutes of my sermon, and and he said, my ears are filled. So I don't quite know what that means, but he seemed satisfied, and then security took him out of the room. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was quite a scene. But about, oh, I was bombarded with like 10 or 15 people afterwards who said, That was deeply sacred. It was so beautiful. Thank you so much for just changing the moment. That story for me was a moment of learning to speak in a new way to my brothers. Because there's pain for women, but there's deep pain for men as well, that they can't stop being who God has made them either, you know and what does it look like for them to find their calling in whatever body God has given them, even though the world is currently telling them, we don't want to hear your voice anymore. And so it's a beautiful thing to actually have those open conversations where we see one another once
1: again. Coming out of that luncheon, Karen and I were both struck by the evidence of virtue that we witnessed at work among the women that day.
0: I have never heard a woman who has felt silenced and oppressed by the church and has been speak the kind of love, forgiveness, patience, and forbearance toward those who've done that like I heard. Mandy Smith, do today. Yeah,
1: that was really powerful.
0: Yeah. We need more of that in the church from all sides.
1: So you are a person who um, loves words. Yes. Words matter, <laughs> yes. right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, you talked about the way we're so polarized. Mm-hmm. Everything is really kind of campy. Mm-hmm. But I notice you as someone who is very strong in conviction mm-hmm. But really, you kind of defy labels or categories in some ways. What is that like for you to find your space Mm. in that? And how do we as Christians in such a like label-laden world? Yeah, thank you. That's a good word. My word person here. Yeah, this Mm. label-laden world. How do we begin to make spaces of meaning and belonging Mm. that aren't so quick Mm. to grab the labels?
0: Yeah, it's so interesting because, I mean, labels are words and I love words and they're really, really important, but they're tools, you know. But we live in a culture that rather than using the words and the labels as effectively and lovingly and gently as tools, we've become imprisoned by them and trapped by them. And it's so wrong and sad and awful. We don't and so many people don't even realize how they are kept prisoner by these labels and categories. Now, now there are some labels and categories that are important and and we can't let go of and you know like like I said at the beginning I'm a Christian, I'm a wife, I'm a teacher. I'm a woman, um and i you know i'm not I'm not a deconstructionist, so i'm not you know I'm not for redefining some of these terms and categories that are i think rooted in biology and nature and the Bible, but you know what there aren't really that many of them <laughs> there are there are a whole lot more out there that we're using today to, to define ourselves and define our our enemies um mm-hmm. that are not only cultural but they're like. 21st century American cultural, like how narrow can you get? So we become bound and imprisoned by these, you know, these human made categories that can be helpful tools, but we're being used by them rather than using them.
1: Okay, yeah. So they become utilitarian in a way. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a lot of tension to (laughs) (laughs) enter space without those
0: so yeah and i i do um you know i get into a little trouble now and then because because either i will refuse to accept a label um you know i had some fundamentalists get upset with me a few years ago when they because i'm southern baptist and they want to know if i'm complementarian and i said well a complementarian and egalitarian are like words made up in within the evangelical context in the 1980s i'm like my faith tradition goes back about 2,000 years, (laughs) not to the 1980s. And so, yeah, do I have a hold to a certain hermeneutics of scripture that I think, you know, is right and that reflects my denominational affiliation? Yeah. Um, But that's been around for a long time before the 1980s. So yeah, I've gotten into trouble for that. But on the other hand, I will use those words when it's helpful to talk about, like like I just did when we were talking about what was happening at, at lunch today, because those yeah. are terms that are familiar, and and again, they're tools. Um, and it's part of our cultural reality, too, yeah. of like, this is
1: the thing yeah. that we're talking about. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. And even, you know, a word that's getting a lot of, of controversy in my circles today is the word pro-life, because... And I'm, you know, I'm I'm pro life by every definition of the word. I think, um, mm-hmm. the, the, I've got to check the de- you know, the definition <laughs> keeps changing. But you know, when in the '80s when that term became very prominent within American political and church discourse, it really was synonymous with anti-abortion. And that's fine. I mean, I don't I'm anti a lot of things, and I don't mind calling myself anti-abortion. But everyone else said, oh, we've got to use the term pro-life. Okay. And now, you know, a younger generation is coming up and saying, well, you know, if you're going to use that label pro-life, what about this issue and that issue? And, you know, yeah, okay, yeah, let's mm-hmm. let's talk about that. And But there are some of the old guard who say, you know, you can only mean anti-abortion if you use that term. And I'm like, you know what, if you want to know my view on abortion, I'll say it's anti-abortion. And mm-hmm. I don't, you know, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's an interesting time. It, that's just one example. Mm-hmm. But labels mm-hmm. and terms matter. But... They do all words change definitions. And when we're living through a time when those definitions are changing, you know, we've got to pay attention, but we've got to hold them loosely and remember that they're tools. And as culture changes, so do our categories. And we've got to live in the reality and the culture that we have and be faithful there
1: because that's where God has put us. Okay. Yeah. And how is that for you personally to kind of live in the in a lot of these tension points, mm-hmm. because you have a public voice. Mm-hmm. So what you choose to say comes back to you in ways yeah, that not everyone yeah. has that happen. What is that yeah. process like for you? And Even in terms of your your development of virtue?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the virtues is prudence, and that's like applied wisdom. And there's wisdom that's theoretical, like wisdom like, oh, in the perfect world, this would be the best thing to do. But prudence... Is more like, okay, well, this is the situation we have. What do we do now? And so I think I really try to exercise prudence. I try to be measured in my words. And, you know, even though I'm on social media a lot and tweet way too much, um, I still try to be thoughtful and careful. And even if it's only a couple of seconds to to just weigh and say, okay, what are the possible consequences of, you know, if I tweet this out or say this? And I, I think a lot of people don't even do that. So just to kind of be measured and think about the consequences. I mean, people often ask me questions like this. And I, I guess I'm part of my identity, perhaps going back to the mm. opening. Like, I honestly have never felt my whole life like I fit in when I was, you know, in school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wanted to be one of the cool kids, but I was like not cool enough and I wanted to be a smart kid and I did get in with the smart kids but I wasn't the smartest kid and then you know when I went into my grad program I was the only Christian there and I was Mm. conservative in this really liberal environment so I didn't fit in there and then I got my, you know, first teaching and current teaching position at Liberty University, which is a conservative evangelical university like me. But when I first came, especially, it was more conservative. I mean, there was a dress changed code. A lot. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, my, my colleagues teased me because when I showed up for my interview, they said I was wearing combat boots. Well, they weren't really combat boots. Were they Doc Martens? Yeah. <laughs> they, they were like a knockoff, yes. So but i but i i made that decision intentionally i'm like i i have the same doctrinal and faith commitments as this university but I wear them differently. I mean, in, in, a, in a literal and <laughs> metaphorical way. And I, I said, when I come and do this interview, I want, I want this job. I believe in its mission. But I don't want to be here unless they want me for who I am. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, you know, I wore sort of like a blouse and jacket with the combat boots, um, because I wanted them to have a sense of of who I was, and for that to be okay. And it, and it was. I that was 19 years ago. I've been there. Mm-hmm. I'm finishing up my 19th year. Um, but yeah, certainly there have been times where I, you know, have not felt like I fit in exactly mm-hmm. there either. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I guess that makes it easier that I haven't always felt like I fit in all the categories mm-hmm. and the, where I find myself. So,
1: mm-hmm. um, so last question. So as a teacher, but also as a, as a voice within the church, I, I, Can I say at large? That's not quite it. Church universal, (laughs) missing church. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The church universal, but particularly as a teacher, you've watched a lot of change in your students. What do you long for for the future? Maybe even going back again to the virtues. What is the virtue that you hope that we can gather around or that we most need today? What do you What do you Hmm. long for for your students and for the church? To be able to move into in terms of flourishing and thriving the church. Well, for the sake of the world, I want to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, this is
0: actually the subject of my my plenary talk tomorrow morning, a little bit. (laughs) Um, You can't have a single virtue without all the virtues. So I would just Mm -hmm. go back to that. Central sort of understanding of virtue is is avoiding the ditches on both sides of the road, right? And you can look at any issue that divides the church today or in history and see how just simply staying in that middle, that moderate—you know, not—I don't mean mushy compromise. I mean, I mean avoiding extremes on either side, whether it's the place of women in the church or it's you know race relations i mean it's so easy to swing from one extreme to the other and so i think you know for those who are concerned about the church going in maybe in my community it would be a too progressive a direction i would say well what reaction does that represent that's a reaction against The extreme, you know, Mm. our error. What is our error that someone else is reacting against? It's not, yeah, it's not always that, but it usually is, yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I love how young people today are correcting. I think some of the errors, you know, I'm talking more particularly in the church, um, correcting some of the errors of previous generations, like putting too much hope in politics Mm. or putting too much emphasis on the local congregation without, you know, looking Mm. at the the global church and and the the way that we can plug into the church universal. I mean, those are just a couple of examples, but just kind of correcting that pendulum swing that's gone too far. We'll always have to do that, this side of the new heaven and earth, Um, but we can learn from the mistakes of the past and we'll make new mistakes, but um, we don't have to repeat the old ones if we pay attention and strive for that truth which is in the middle, in the crux, which is where we actually find Christ. Yeah, that's so beautiful. That's wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing. Well, thanks for having this conversation with me.
1: Well, this conversation, it really helped me think differently about virtue. I had to ask myself, when I face danger or pain, do I exercise virtue or vice? I was also struck by the ways that I've accepted a gendered version of virtue. But to be conformed to the image of Christ, it means that all of the virtues will be evident in my life. Not just the softer feminine variety. They're all meant to work together. And as a woman, how do I live and lead in a virtuous way? Not for my own sake, but for the good of my family, for my church, for my community, and the world because the good of virtue is for the common good. So I asked Mandy Smith to bless us with a prayer that she wrote. It's a blessing, particularly for women, as we consider how to live and to lead with virtue and valor.
2: Let this be my prayer for all of my sisters out there as well as I speak this, even as it's my prayer for myself. She leads with wisdom and courage. She leads with creativity, with strength and conviction. She leads with her heart, her head and her hands. She leads when she feels strong. She leads when she doesn't. She leads through pain. She leads with dancing. She leads from her own story for the hope of the world, for the blessing of others in the power of the Spirit. She leads with her sisters, she leads with her brothers. She leads because she follows. She follows her heart, her hope, her instinct. She follows her Lord and where he leads, she leads so others may follow,
1: amen. For listening to this episode of the Betwixt podcast, you can find more Betwixt episodes and view our show notes at betwixtpodcast.com, or you can visit my partners at missioalliance.org. Missio Alliance is resourcing a church reimagined for a world recreated. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed and given Betwixt a positive review on iTunes or Google Play. If you haven't done that yet, please consider taking a minute to help me out. This really is the fuel of podcast, and it makes a big difference. Special thanks to my friends Rivoli for sharing the music that you hear now. You can check them out at r-y-v-o-l-i dot com or Facebook slash Rivoli. Hey, it has been a real pleasure to produce this podcast for you. Thank you for holding liminal space with me today. Catch you next time.